one of the phrases I, I don't think I had heard before that, but I heard a lot at boot camp was, where's your sense of urgency? And uh, the idea being that when you got a task to do for moving from here to there or whatever it might be, uh, do it with a sense of urgency. And the message this morning is a call to Christians to live with a sense of urgency when it comes to our life and when it comes to our witness to the world around us. And my prayer is that we would respond to this message with a renewed sense of urgency, not only about how we live our lives in the practical sense, but more importantly, how we view our role as proclaimers of the gospel message. And there are three key texts that I'm going to use this morning. All three of these passages that we're going to look at give us examples of things that make heaven rejoice. These passages should make us excited about the hope we have as well as they should challenge us to live for Christ while we still have time because make no mistake, time is short. And as we look at the world around us and what is happening to the very bedrock values that society is built on, we should sense more urgency to pray and to seek God and to share the gospel. And my prayer is that all of us will feel challenged to develop or to improve our sense of urgency and how we view a world that is ever nearer to that climactic point when history ends and all will be judged. So the first passage we're going to look at is from Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 6. And uh, we're going to see that in verse 6, John saw in his vision what to the Christian ought to be one of the most exciting and hopeful events that we could ever have in our mind to look forward to. The greatest celebration that we could possibly imagine And that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So let's look at the text from verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us and rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, as we go through this passage and others this morning, may your word and your Holy Spirit be what speaks to us. And Lord, I pray that I would not be in the way of your message to your church. Lord, I pray that we would respond with a newfound energy that propels us to have more hope in our future because we trust in you and more desire to live out our lives with a sense of urgency. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we have a great, blessed 
hope for our future. And reading passages like this one in John's Revelation give us a glimpse of the glory we will experience in eternity. Now, just before we moved here to Wagner, seven plus years ago now, uh, we went to a beautiful wedding. And it's one I still remember pretty well. The young lady getting married was a fellow student at Trinity Bible College, but she was also our babysitter. And uh, she married a young man who was a preaching student with me, and uh, I had been thrilled to watch him even in the few years we were together there as he matured and grew in the Lord and, and was a student, and then now he's a pastor as well. And the celebration was wonderful because this young couple represents what I believe marriage itself represents. What I tell every couple I've ever counseled and married is that marriage itself is an illustration for us and a glimpse of the unity found in the Trinity. And Scripture bears that out in Ephesians 5 and other places. That's not what I'm preaching on this morning. But we have difficulty sometimes perceiving what exactly the Trinity is and how it works but God gave us a glimpse of it in the family unit. So husband, wife, children, in a godly context and in a healthy home are a good representation of the unity found in the Trinity. And even more so, this passage about the marriage supper of the Lamb represents the culmination of God's ultimate plan for our redemption and our complete union with Him. Throughout the Bible, marriage is used as an analogy of our relationship to God and so, biblically speaking, God is the groom and we are the bride. Or Christ is the groom and we are the bride in other places. At the wedding we attended that I just mentioned, the groom was beaming as his bride appeared and began to walk down the aisle. And the anticipation of the marriage was evident on his face and his love for her was palpable. The wedding was followed by a reception where... All the family and friends of the bride and groom were able to laugh and share stories and celebrate with each other. It may have been one of the most inexpensive weddings we've been to and also one of the most special. The joy of a good marriage causes us to reflect on our own family relationships and we had fond memories of our own wedding as we participated. And that wedding in particular was exciting especially for Gabby and, May and Corinna a little bit, and Ariella was just a baby, but it was especially because this was their beloved babysitter who they had given the name Rapunzel to because she had blonde hair. And when they saw her coming down the aisle, one of the girls, I think it was Gabby, shouted, she's a princess. And uh, any of those with daughters, you understand when I say, you know, the, Daughters often love everything about the princesses, the fairy tales. Uh, they're often ending in marriage. All of the pomp and ceremony that caused little girls and their moms to just want to dance. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, as described here in Revelation, we see that those of us who are in Christ will be invited to participate. Not only as guests, but as the bride. And finally, we'll be able to see Jesus face-to-face -face and experience something we cannot experience, at least not in its perfection here on earth. We will be completely united with Christ in our sinless state permanently. Not just covered by His blood as we are now, and positionally, 
clean before God because of Christ, but truly clean. And so like a bride, we'll be adorned in white linen, bright and pure. And on that day, we will have the full realization of everything we've been trying to understand. That day will be so glorious that we'll cry out in praise to God because of all that he's done. And friends, this day could come at any time. And this should be a great encouragement to us. We all deal with trials and difficulties and discouragements in our lives. We all see the news and what's going on in the world. When the days on earth here seem to be too challenging or too heartbreaking or too lonely, we need to encourage one another that we don't live for today. We don't live for earthly satisfaction. But our ultimate and final state of being in glorious communion with God, our Savior, will be very soon. And for that reason, we should be encouraged that when the shout of praise to God described in this passage at the marriage supper of the Lamb, it will be you and I, Christian, who will be voicing those very words. Yes, it will be you and I and a multitude of others from the centuries of human life on earth, others who had a repentant heart, and an understanding of their sorry state without a redeemer, and they will cry out, as described here. Men and women of faith that we've read about, like Abraham and Job and Esther and many whom we've read about and learned about, and also many others whose stories of faith we haven't yet heard, but we'll have an eternity to learn. Now, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. So this is the first example of rejoicing in heaven that I'm going to give you this morning. And if you are in Christ, a faithful believer who has put salvation faith in him, then you will be part of it. Now I want to speak of another rejoicing in heaven. And Jesus speaks of this twice in Luke chapter 15. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can, but I'll have this on the screen as well. Jesus tells two short parables there. First, in verses 1 to 7, he tells the parable of the lost sheep. A parable that most of us are familiar with. Jesus tells us that a man with a hundred sheep will go out and find the one lost sheep, and when he finds it, he'll celebrate finding the lost one. The parable is an illustration for the grace of God in that he desires for every lost person of his fold to come to him. In verse 7, he concludes it this way, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I find that ironic because there are no righteous persons that need no repentance. But Jesus is making a strong point here. He's, and so he's telling us that the repentance of a sinner causes joy. It causes rejoicing in heaven. And then he tells the parable of a woman with 10 coins. And you know that one. She lost one coin. She searches for it. And when she finally finds it, she calls her friends together and says, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. And Jesus concludes that parable by again reminding us of heaven's response to the repentant sinner. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So where is our sense of urgency to bring sinners to repentance? We have just been encouraged by the prospect of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where there's rejoicing in heaven, and knowing that this great event is in store for all who accept by faith the blood of Christ to atone for their sins, 
that it is a free gift of grace from God to each who desire it, why don't we share the gospel with more people? Imagine you went on a shopping trip to your favorite department store, and as you're walking past the electronics section, an employee says to you, we have some, a free gift for you. It's an entertainment system, top of the line, high definition, big screen, surround sound, free one-year subscription to uh, whatever TV service you want, and it's a free gift. Well, most of us, our first response would be, yeah, what, what's the catch, right? What else am I got to subscribe to to get this thing? But let's suppose for a moment that the, it truly was, and the employee explains to you, it's a tr- it really is a free gift. Our corporation has a promotion, selected our store, and everyone who comes in today gets this free gift. And not, so not only can you have it, but every family in town can have it as long as they can come and claim it by the end of the week. Now, would you tell anyone on your way out of the store? Or maybe before you even got out of the store, you'd have your phone out texting everybody you know. You'd probably contact everyone you knew that was nearby. Tell them, hey, get in gear, get over and take advantage of this. There's something infinitely more valuable than any entertainment system available to those who would take it. We've taken advantage of this free offer if we're in Christ, and yet we often keep our lips sealed as far as sharing it with others, the hope that we have. To compare it with the example I just gave, it's like you were given the free entertainment system, but then you just kind of snuck out of the store and avoided eye contact with anyone else. But Jesus said that heaven rejoices over a repentant sinner. We rejoice as well at the church. Every testimony we hear of salvation makes us rejoice, and that's great. And we should be excited about that as well. So now we've seen two examples of rejoicing in heaven. The first was the marriage supper of the Lamb. The second was when a sinner repents. Both of these examples should give us cause to celebrate as well. Because celebrating with heaven when a sinner repents is part of our pleasure as well. And celebrating in anticipation for the marriage supper of the Lamb is something that should fill us with joy as well. So here's the question to consider. If we will celebrate what Jesus did for us during the marriage supper of the Lamb, and if the angels of heaven celebrate the repentant sinner, what is the emotional response of heaven when the sinner doesn't repent and is cast into eternal conscious torment in the end? It is rejoicing. It's rejoicing. Seems shocking, right? And contradictory. That doesn't... Agree with what I just said. If if heaven rejoices at the repentance of a sinner, how could it also rejoice at the damnation of a sinner? Because justice is required. And in the end, we will all rejoice when justice is done, even when it means eternal damnation for those who have not accepted Christ. Let's take a look at our last passage about heaven rejoicing. It's right before the other passage I started with in Revelation 19 at the beginning of the chapter. Now, preceding this passage, judgment has fallen on Babylon. The great city, the center of wealth for the world, it's destroyed in short order. 
The destruction is complete, and it represents the destruction of the unrepentant. Not only is the destruction complete, it is everlasting. It includes those who take the mark of the beast. In Revelation, we see the judgment of people. We see the judgment of organizations, such as the church and nations. We see the judgment of spirits, all of whom will be judged fairly. And all of whom are unrepentant will be punished severely. And we who will be spared judgment because we have faith in Christ to salvation will end up rejoicing at the fair judgment of God. Revelation 19, 1, and 3, 1 to 3. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Chapter 19 in Revelation contains the only time in the New Testament with, with what they call a fourfold hallelujah. And that fourfold hallelujah is in reference to the fall of Babylon and the judgment of the unrepentant. Not only that, but Revelation 19 is the only time in the New Testament where the Hebrew word for hallelujah is not translated. In other words, though the passage was originally written in Greek, the hallelujah here in the original manuscripts, was actually in the Hebrew language. Anywhere else in the New Testament, it's translated to Greek, which is the original language that the New Testament was written in. And in the NIV, some of you have the NIV, hallelujah is always translated to praise the Lord, except for here, in Revelation 19. And that is because the hallelujah stands on its own. Since it was in the original Hebrew in the manuscripts, the translators left it that way. Hallelujah does mean praise the Lord. So we see that the judgment of God clearly is being praised in this passage. Now this should be understandable in a way. It's our nature to want to see justice done, right? Except to ourselves, of course, right? Now I'll give you an example, and I've probably given this one before. Uh, some years ago, I was driving on the highway, and I always try to set my cruise to the speed limit so I don't have to be having a little heart palpitations when I see a, a state patrol car or something like that, and also out of respect for the law. <laughs> but suddenly, I saw in my mirror a car coming up behind me at an extremely high rate of speed. At the minimum, he was at least 20 miles over the speed limit, and I got mad. Here I was, setting my cruise, following the speed limit, and this guy just had total disregard for the law. He was a scofflaw. Don't hear that word much anymore. It's a real word. And in other words, he could care less about the posted speed limit. He had a powerful red sports car, and he was going to test its limits on that highway between Bismarck and Minot, North Dakota. I was still steaming about it several minutes later when I saw some flashing lights up ahead of me. I got him. I rejoiced, not because I hated the driver necessarily, but because I was seeing justice done and I celebrated. In fact, Proverbs 11.10 says, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, 
And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. So I can tell you, when I saw that guy pulled over, I gave a shout of gladness. So don't be surprised that the Bible tells us that heaven will rejoice when God's final judgment is passed. But keep in mind that those we lead to Christ before the judgment will bring joy to heaven because of their repentance. Now, this is not necessarily how we're supposed to act today. Proverbs 24 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn his anger from him. So look, we're not at this time to celebrate the falling of another person, even an enemy. Why? Well, there's a few good reasons. One reason is that we're in the flesh. We can't trust that we know what's going on. We can't even trust that our emotion about a certain circumstance is spot on. Maybe the person's under God's wrath. Maybe there's another plan. We don't know. And I've known many people who pined away waiting for someone else to fail. Have you known anyone like that? They're so mad at that person. You're going to fail. I just know it. I can't wait to see it happen. And they're pining away for that. They're just waiting so they can say, Aha! So that may mean I was wrong in my response to that speeder I mentioned. And I have been wrong many times to want to see someone fail or to be happy for their falling. So that's one reason we don't have proper judgment all the time. Further, we know that ultimately God will bring his perfect justice. And this is the example we see in Revelation. God has now revealed his justice. And at that time, we will rejoice. And if we can have a steady faith in God's ultimate justice, we can avoid rejoicing when our enemy falls now. Because that proverb continues, fret not yourself because of evildoers and, and fret not yourselves because of evildoers and be not envious of the wicked for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. So we see a tension, don't we, between those two proverbs. On the one hand, the city rejoices when the wicked perish. On the other hand, we're warned that should not be our response at this time. Yet, there will be, however, a time when we who love seeing sinners come to repentance will rejoice at sinners being cast into eternal punishment because the Bible tells us that. That will be the time when the redeemed at the marriage supper of the Lamb rejoice at the judgment of God and the destruction of Babylon and their unrepentant. So we see three examples of when heaven rejoices. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, number one. Number two, when a sinner repents. And three, when God's final judgment on sinners is complete. We who believe are privileged to have been convinced by the Holy Spirit of our need for a Savior and have found Christ to be that and more, we who believe will be part of the celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb so when we read that heaven rejoices at the judgment of Babylon and the destruction of the unrepentant, it will be us, those who are welcomed into heaven, who will be rejoicing at the eternal conscious torment that is God's judgment on the wicked. That means that the ones who our neighbors, I can't remember who our neighbors is, Mike, Mark can tell you later, I do remember the class. Okay, but the ones that are our neighbors, our friends, our relatives, people we pass by every day, 
those who never repent and accept Christ's sacrifice will be judged. And you and I and all of heaven will celebrate their judgment at that time. And that should be a sobering thought to us. But more than that, it should compel us to share Christ with others. But we don't share Christ only because of our sadness at the thought of a sinner being punished. We do it also because we are required to. We are to love God and love people. The Ten Commandments, four are towards God, six are towards people. Love God, love people. This comes from Jesus' answer to one of many people who tried to trap him in the question. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest law of God? His answer was, love God with all your heart. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Furthermore, Scripture tells us that we cannot claim to love God if we do not love our brother. Another reason these statements make sense is that they naturally flow out of one another. If we love God, then we will love our neighbors. Why? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He commanded us to love not only our neighbor, but our enemy as well, and to pray for our enemy. Furthermore, his command to us that we refer to as the Great Commission is that we Preach the gospel to every creature, meaning every human creature. So where is our sense of urgency, church? Where's our sense of urgency when we ignore the hurting people around us? Where's our sense of urgency when we have family members who need to wake up to their precarious position before God? Where's our sense of urgency when we're thrilled to share our faith within these church walls but not outside so much? Where is our sense of urgency when we would rather be in our comfort zone than see new people saved and discipled? Church, we need a wake-up call. The reason for the power of the Holy Spirit, the reason God gives us is to benefit the church and to empower us to witness. Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit was a comforter and helper but also he told us that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be able to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ and overcome any obstacle, including our own shyness, to share Christ. Where's your sense of urgency? Where's your sense of urgency when you consider that you get to be part of the greatest celebration that any of us can ever imagine, the marriage supper of the Lamb? Should we not be excited to offer free reservations to those who would join us? Where's your sense of urgency when you think how your sharing of the gospel could result not only increasing the number of reservations to the marriage supper of the Lamb, but would result in heaven rejoicing? Where's your sense of urgency when on the day of judgment the cheer will go up for the eternal damnation of all unrepentant sinners? You see, based on the passages we looked at this morning, I can conclude that every person who lives today and every person that has lived on the earth and will live on the earth there's going to be rejoicing in heaven over. But will that rejoicing be because of repentance or because of judgment? Where's your sense of urgency? Jesus once healed a man and he said, don't share it with anyone. Don't tell anyone what happened here. What did the guy do? He went and told everyone what happened. His excitement at being touched by Jesus was too much for him to keep to himself, despite the fact that Jesus commanded him to be silent. And yet we're commanded to speak out and yet often fearful to do so. Where's your sense of urgency? 
I make one more point. The, many evangelical Christians today are uneasy about the prospect of eternal conscious torment as punishment for the unrepentant sinner. And so they've made up theories. And they've put forth these theories. One theory is called annihilationism. So they don't want to believe that God would eternally punish someone, so they came up with this theory, well, uh, God will eventually cause the unrepentant to cease existence. So they won't really be uh, punished forever. At some point, they stop existing. Others believe that after a certain period of time, then the sins are burned off, and then they, everybody gets to heaven. That's called universalism. Still others believe that the unrepentant will continue to have an opportunity to accept Christ even while they're in hell. But the Bible clearly teaches that the punishment of the damned is eternal. In Revelation 19.3 it says, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The Bible proclaims that the Lord God is just and his judgment will be fair, and his punishments will be awful. The psalmist said righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. God will do what is right, and he is fair and he is just. In light of the prospect of eternal conscious torment for those who do not accept Christ, and in light at the example of heaven rejoicing we've looked at this morning, I ask one more time, where is your sense of urgency? We need to share Christ. We're commanded to. It flows both from a response of God's grace towards us and our desire to keep his commands and from our love for those around us. Our sense of urgency should be also to make sure that we ourselves personally are ready when Christ comes. This is daily reflection, folks. Examine yourself daily. Reflect on his word daily. We need to become mature Christians who understand and can share our faith with others because we understand what it means to say, I am saved. So our sense of urgency should cause us to look outward and bring the good news to the world, but also to look inward, to take our own faith seriously enough that it's the centerpiece of our life and existence life and existence that we should live in every moment with the hope and expectation of Christ, our coming King. So as we look at what's going on in our world this week, and I'm not going to repeat all of it, you probably have been well aware of what's going on. You could call your senators or congressmen or all of those things, and that nothing wrong with that. But uh, if you're troubled about what's happening in the world, what ought to be your first response? Examine yourself. Because if you're not at peace with what's going on in the world, that's something here going on between you and God first. If you are truly at peace with God, then no matter what happens in the world, you can have this joy because you can know, hey, I've been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and in the end I'll be there. So I'm going to close with a prayer here and then we'll have a closing song. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. May your word strike us, Lord. May it bring us to reflection 
may it give us hope. May it trouble us about the lostness of others. May it trouble us about the unrepentant sin in our own hearts. May it give us cause to rejoice to know your promises are true, your justice is perfect, and in the end we can trust you will do what is right. But Lord, may it give us a sense of urgency that we would live each day first for you and only after that for everything else. In Jesus' name, amen.